SENZ 136, yeah, hit me with your bet shot. One of the great ones from Pat Benatar. Plenty of shots being hit at the ASB Tennis Arena in the first week, or the only week at the men's tournament. We're into day three at the moment in the doubles. Uh, seven, six, six all, three, one in the uh, tie break between the fourth seeds, uh, Withrow and Lamons and Bambury and Haas. Haas, that's Rowan Haas, who was a singles player as well, uh, took the first set seven, six, and it's six all, three, one at the moment. A one man that didn't make it past the first round, but he's a bronze medalist at the Olympics. And I think he wants to go back again as our very own Marcus Daniel, who joins us right now. Happy New Year, mate. Happy New Year, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I I had no idea that you were uh, wanting to go back to the Games. Yeah, look, it's just such a special experience. And Tokyo was incredible for pretty obvious reasons, but also quite strange for other reasons. You know, empty stadiums uh, couldn't really have the social or family or support aspect of it. So, you know, if I can squeeze another Olympics in there and, and get a shinier medal, then that would be just absolutely <laughs> glorious. How tough has doubles become? You know, it's, it's really interesting, actually. Uh, I've been off tour for a couple of years and just coming back on tour and catching up with old friends. It seems to be a bit of a thing that uh, the depth in doubles has just got uh, so much stronger. Uh, and, you know, people at all levels of the game are playing really well. So, uh, definitely in the uh, eight to ten years that I've been sort of playing at the top level, uh, the depth has increased, and I think the trend's going to continue. So you and Ben were a handy combination, but got got beaten by the number one seeds. Getting back out on stadium court, just feeling the rhythm, uh, how does the body feel? Yeah, the body's good. Um, I was, to, to be honest, uh, before I started back in, in tournament play again, I was a little worried with how I was going to pull up after matches. Um, but no, the body's feeling good, the knee's holding up, um, and, you know, the, the thing that I was really pleased about uh, when we played that first round was now the level actually feels like it's coming back as well. Yeah, but it's going to be tough, right? And, and this is the one thing I, I want to talk to you about. Doubles is entertaining, right? And sport should be entertaining. Are you concerned that maybe doubles doesn't get enough credit that it should on the, on the tours uh, when there's not a lot of really outstanding personalities, keyword here, personalities in the singles ranks? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm definitely very biased about this, but I do think doubles doesn't get as much exposure as, as it should, especially because, you know, a lot of people recreationally play doubles. So I think being able to see doubles played at the highest level is, is actually, well, everyone I speak to says that they really enjoy it. Um, but I think it's a bit of a chicken-egg situation where, you know, the, the ATC or WTA, they, they have to put spend into marketing doubles in order to create the profiles that then people will want to come and watch. So it's... You know, how, how do you get that ball rolling, I think is the question. Well, I think you'd ask the people what they want, wouldn't you? Because, I mean, we miss the days when people are, when individuals are screaming at each other on the singles. And now we've got, I just sense, apart from Kyrgios, who's not playing, men's tennis, particularly in the singles, is a bit bland. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I'd agree with you. Um, on the other hand, I do think that the level on the tennis court is just increasing and increasing. Yeah. So the tennis level is getting better, but I think, yeah, the, uh, I mean, I don't want to call it unprofessionalism, the uh, screaming at each other, but it definitely adds a bit of drama, and I guess drama is what people want to watch. I mean, are you a fan of Kyrgios when he goes off? I mean, the guy can play tennis, we know that, but are you a fan of him? Um, that's a tricky question, because in, <laughs> in some ways I'm a fan. Look, I'm going to be very, very democratic here, Stephen. Uh, in some ways, I'm a fan because he definitely puts thumbs on seats, and I think that's good for the sport. In other ways, I'm 
a bit of a purist when it comes to things like sportsmanship and etiquette and treating your opponents with respect. And I remember a match that he played against Mike Venus at the Aussie Open and doubles. That's right. Uh, this would have been two or three years ago, and I thought it was it was horrendous the uh, the behaviour on court. Um, so good and bad sides to Nick, and I just hope as he gets you know as he ages as he matures the the good wins out. That was with Kokonakis, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, no, I, I remember that I've visibly. I actually don't think he wants to play anymore. I actually think he, I think he might be done. I think we're, he's teasing us when I think he might be done, which would be a real shame because we know how good how good he can be. The real concern I've got, uh, Marcus, is New Zealanders can't produce singles players anymore that can actually push up the ranks. Where, where are we getting it wrong? That's a, that's a big question, and I wish that I could get you a one sentence sentence answer that could oh. just be turned into producing top hundred singles players. But yeah. in, in my mind, there, there are two major issues. The first is that we're, we're in New Zealand and New Zealand is, you know, on the opposite side of the world from where the majority of tennis occurs or majority of high level tennis, which, which is in Europe. So just purely the distance um, away from where the top levels of the game are, that's an issue because it means that as a junior, you have to, either have the funds from your family or have the support of a federation. And, and you know, New Zealand tennis is, is always strapped for cash. So to benchmark yourself against the best players in the world, you have to go to the other side of the world. And that's just prohibitive for a huge amount of people. And then the other side of it, in, in my mind, is that we don't have the, um, the pathways set up here in New Zealand to funnel people from junior through to professional level. Like, I, I think we, we have an abundance of talent here. Like, we, we have a lot of talented individuals in New Zealand and they'll succeed at the junior level, but then there won't be a pathway to go from there to really succeeding at the professional level. And yeah. how to create that pathway, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was about, that was my next question, actually. What, what does the pathway look like? Do, does Tennis New Zealand have to uh, align itself with another association around the world to create those pathways? Yeah, potentially. And, and then I guess the question is, what's in it for that other federation? Um, I mean, we had two futures events in New Zealand before Christmas last year, and that's a good step. I mean, so at the moment, we have some junior tournaments, and then we have the, the ASD Classic, which is an ATP Tour event. I think there needs to be more stepping stones between juniors and ATP 250s. So that means lots of futures events where, where Kiwi tennis players can play at the lowest levels of the professional game, Challenger, which is the level between futures and tour events. So I think if we could have a couple of those in New Zealand every year, that would be another stepping stone. And so when our best players get to the to the ATP tour level, it's not such a shock to the system. You know, they can they can progress in small steps rather than being expected to take a massive leap. Yeah, because I was watching KP Panu play yesterday. He just he look yeah six four six four, but he just just didn't look look on his game, you know. It's, it's sort of, it felt almost very, very slow compared to what I'm seeing on centre court at the moment. I mean, do you agree? And it can be you don't have to answer the question. Do you agree that we should have a playoff for our top players? I would have thought, like any other country around the world that has a tournament, you put your top players and give them a wild card straight away because people want to see the best. It's not about participation. Yeah, I think there's merit to that. Um, I do think, so this might be a controversial take, I think uh, if you're going to be given a wild card directly, there should be a ranking criteria that you have to meet in order to get given the wild card. Uh, and then outside of that ranking band, then I think people should have to compete for it. So, for example, 
if someone is top 300 in the world or top 250 in the world, then I think they deserve to have a wild card. And then if there are players between 250 and 1,000, then maybe play, or, or if there's no one top 250, then everyone should compete for it. Yes, uh, because, I know, disagree. I think if, if someone's 500 or 550, I don't think there's a huge difference in level there. You see, I disagree because I, I disagree on one stand. You've, you've got your number ones and your number twos, right? I say give your number ones the wild card straight away for one simple reason. You talk about getting fans in there, and regardless of where they are, I mean, you, you played in, in front of a good crowd, right, because they knew New Zealanders were playing, and that's an important part of tennis DNA in this country. I do agree with that. Um, as a counterpoint, uh, Gail Monfils got a singles main draw wildcard. Uh, didn't make it in on his ranking, but because he's super entertaining, it was worth, worth that. So ranking alone without taking anything else into account, I think might be a little bit simplified. Oh, well, I'd love that. Well, why should we make it difficult? Why can't we make it simple? Yeah, that's a fair point, Stephen. I'll give you that one. <laughs> hey, um, I know there are clay courts in uh, Wairarapa. Have you had a hit on them? And, and do you think we need more clay as a, a as a sensible option? You know, it's, um, I'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but I, I haven't actually hit on those courts. And I would love to because having proper European clay in New Zealand it's the first time that's happened in my life. And the fact that it's, you know, like a stone's throw from where I grew up, it's just pretty amazing. Um, but I, I really, I deeply believe that we need a lot more clay courts around New Zealand to produce singles players because the majority of events happen on clay. And if you can't play on clay or if you don't play well on clay, then you're very, very limited at the top level. Hey, let's talk about one of your passion projects, which probably takes up more time than your tennis, and that's the high-impact athletes. How is that going? Explain to people just quickly, what is high-impact athletes? Yeah, so high-impact athletes uh, is a non-profit, and the mission of the non-profit is to try to turn the sporting sector into a force for good in the world. And the mechanism is using the profile and the influence of elite athletes or elite sports people to uh, fundraise for the best charities in the world as dictated by the best current available research. So we partner with 12 charities across a range of cause areas who have all proven to be incredibly cost-effective at doing what they do and improving the world. And we basically just try to bring athletes on board to promote those charities, give their own uh, dollars to those charities, you know, put some money where their mouth is and uh, do a huge amount of good in the world. How has the growth been? It's been pretty incredible to watch, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I honestly thought, so I, I founded this in December 2020, and I honestly thought it was just going to be me pestering my friends uh, about these charities. And very quickly it became obvious that it was going to be something bigger than that. And, you know, now we're at over 200 world-class athletes from over 40 different sports, over 30 different countries. So a, a truly global organization. We've raised something, I think by now it would be close to $2 million uh, for those charities. And, uh, you know, we, we just continue to grow. Um, and we've got some really exciting campaigns and partnerships lined up that we're going to announce in 2024. So, yeah, it's, it's all still in aspiring. Is there a specific type of charity that you target? Yes. And it's quite a, this is probably quite a strange answer, but it's not cause specific. It's effectiveness specific. So the, the way that a charity gets recommended by high-impact athletes or gets put in front of their athletes is if they can prove over time that they're incredibly impactful with every dollar that they spend on doing good in the world. So we cover uh, global health and poverty, animal welfare and climate change, and 12 charities across those cause areas. 
And the one thing that they have in common is that they're incredibly cost effective based on the best research. So that's, that's sort of the, the standard that they have to meet to be recommended by us. With what you're doing, do you feel outside of tennis you're actually now living the dream? <laughs> well, in some ways, yeah. It's, it's, it's been a huge amount of work. It's, it's been a lot more stressful and uh, intense than I expected it would be to, you know, essentially try and build something from scratch and, and maintain a huge amount of relationships. But, you know, I, I think a lot of athletes um, are scared about what comes after sport. And, you know, having been injured for the last couple of years and, and had a huge amount of time on, on crutches and, um, you know, not being able to run around after a tennis ball, I was actually extremely grateful that I had something that I'm so passionate about that gets me out of bed in the morning that I feel is really meaningful and, and doing good in the world to work on. Um, so having that was, was a real godsend. It's called having brains and purpose, Marcus. It's that's it's it's, it's that simple. Hey, another seed's dropped. Uh, Muller's beaten uh, Chirindula on the singles, the third seed, six one six one. Does that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, I actually just saw that score a few minutes ago and was very surprised um, at, at the scoreline, if nothing else. Yeah, uh, I know these these courts are pretty quick, and I wonder if Chirindula is, is more. Uh, suited to clay, but yeah. yeah, I didn't see the match, so I don't know. Yeah, no, he's RG, so he probably loves his clay. Marcus Daniel, thanks always for your time. Uh, good luck with that campaign to uh, get back and try and get a, a shinier medal at the Olympics in Paris, mate. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Pleasure to chat. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Marcus Daniel, high-impact athletes. Have a look at it on online and what they are doing, which is magnificent. So, you know, since 2020, uh, raised $2 million and and counting. A lot of it, too, if you read it, uh, athletes give 10% of their earnings to their charities, which I think is, is is a wonderful thing, to say the least. It's coming up to 150. Uh, Tara Daniels on court against uh, Purcell, the eighth seed, currently leads 2-1-30, love up in the fourth game. Uh, uh, Oje Aliasame, yeah, it was a big tie breaker, a big tiebreaker, but he did, the fourth seed did, t- uh, lost the first set, lost the first set to Altmaier, 7-6 and that other singles match we just mentioned, Muller has dropped the third seed, Cialata uh, uh, Chirindulo, 6-1 1-1, one one. that is a spanking